Celebrate the holidays at an Arizona state park. Whether it's a cool weather hike through the low desert, playing in the snow in the high country, or packing up the family in the RV and spending Christmas in the parks. Just don't forget the presents. Arizona State Parks have something for everyone this holiday season. Find an Arizona State Park near you by visiting azstateparks.com. And happy holidays from Arizona State Parks and Trails. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome on the birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we have a lot to get into, even though the minor leagues are on break for most of this week. We have a lot of news to talk about on tonight's episode. We're going to recap days one and two of the 2023 MLB draft. And we're also going to discuss several promotions that have been announced in the Orioles farm system including Kobe Mayo and Chase McDermott from AA Bowie to AAA Norfolk, and Jackson Holiday from High A Aberdeen up to AA Bowie. They'll be on tonight's show, but first we're going to start off by welcoming Bob back on the air after a couple of weeks off. And Bob, as he usually does, is going to introduce some new members to our Patreon community. Yeah, it feels so good to be back. I missed it while I was gone. Good shows, though, so at least I had something to listen to. Yeah, we got some, some new patrons. We got Paul Jones, Jeremy Reynolds, Vitor de Souza Silva, and one more we got Quinn Phelan here, who is uh, our newest member, youngest member. And, you were uh, yeah, hiding that what... baby. You were hiding that <laughs> yep. baby the whole time we were talking before the show. Yep. She's a very chill baby. She was just chilling out on my lap this whole time. I surprise you all. Um, yeah, so that's why I was out. Uh, happy, happy reasons, but glad to be back for sure. It was kind of our equivalent of the Lion King presenting from uh, Pride Rock and said it's Bob's office there. Yep, absolutely. Now I can sit a little more comfortably with the microphone and we can get uh, to all this exciting stuff. Yeah, I don't know that we're going to quite top that visually for the rest of the night, but we'll try to uh, try our hardest. The Orioles started out the MLB draft on Sunday night by taking Enrique Bradfield Jr. with the 17th overall pick. The outfielder out of Vanderbilt, consensus grade 80 speed according to most national scouting reports gets plaudits for his defense as well as his contact ability. They rounded out night one by drafting UNC outfielder Mac Horvath, who had 20 homers, 20 steals, and 20 doubles, plus across the board this season at UNC. And then in the beginning of a trend, the Orioles selected, selected a right-handed pitcher, Jackson Ballmeister, out of Florida State. And the reason I said that it, that was the beginning of a trend was that day two, which we're going to get into a little bit later on, was heavy on pitchers, especially right-handed pitchers. So, Nick, I'm going to start with you here. We'll start with Bradfield uh, in particular, just before we get into the other two guys who are taken on night one. I know that that was not a name that either one of us necessarily had on our radars when we were previewing the draft last week. The pick was a little bit of a surprise, especially because some of the players that we highlighted, including Arjun Namala, were still on the board. Yet the Orioles went with Bradfield, and it feels like even though he does part from their preferences in terms of his power production, there are a lot of tools that could fit their model and they seem to like. Yeah, um, and apologies for my voice if I just go out. Uh, it's my, this is my, Bob's back and it's my Jordan flu game here, but it's draft night and I was not going to cancel on this one. But um, I'm glad we weren't live last night though, although I kind of wish maybe we were so I'd have my voice. But the instant reaction I don't think would have been great. Because it was uh, not disappointing, but just like shocking. Because I'm watching this draft and the board is falling perfectly. I never imagined this board is going to fall exactly how I wanted it to. And then, you, like you mentioned, Arjun Namala was there, Colin Houck. I was warming up to Houck. Um, Chase Davis, Braden Taylor, Hurston Waldrop was sitting there. Everybody except Bryce Eldridge, really, that I wanted was sitting there. And they go uh, Enrique Bradfield from Vanderbilt. 
not the super home run oriented, you know, power guy. I feel like we we get a good vibe on how the Orioles are going to attack this draft, and then they're just like, <laughs> "You thought wrong. We're going to switch it up on you." But I think he just fell. I don't think anyone. I never really looked at him because I didn't think he would be there. Even if I did think he would be there, he probably wouldn't be in my top five, six, seven, eight options to be honest. But I think you just saw this value, tremendous value, fall in your laps, and you had to take him. So. You look at some of the metrics, though, out there and some of the underlying data, I think this is a guy who's got a, a pretty impressive hit tool that they can build with. Uh, and I think it was Baseball America said he has like 30-grade home run or 30-grade power in the major leagues. Again, I think some of the metrics and data, you know, you put him in this system, I think the Orioles can get more out of him. And the only guy in the draft with two 80-grade tools, speed and defense. So this is, a, this is a tremendous value I think the Orioles were able to land. Yeah, I was like – getting so excited because as these picks our pick was getting closer and closer i'm like okay my guys are still there chase davis arjun namala hurston waldrop let's go we're gonna get one of them for sure and then this guy just was not even on my radar whatsoever the only thing i really knew about him was he's fast and apparently all he can do is he's a slap hitter that's what i had heard coming into last night so i was a little disappointed not gonna lie but just basically like the whole first night the more I digested stuff about it, slept on it, I I just grew to like it more and more. I love that he's got the 80-grade speed, 70-80-grade defense in center field. Sounds like he's got 80-grade character and leadership skills, so hard work. Um, and if there's one thing that this player development team has uh, proven they can do, it's develop hitters. So if that's like the only thing missing in his game, if you can get him to... Tap into that in-game power to like 15 home runs, 20 home runs, 270, 280 hitter. That's that's a star right there. And what really sold me on him was the uh, lack of chasing pitches outside of the zone. Seems like he fits right in with the Colton Cowsers and Gunnar Hendersons and, and all the guys we have that have work great at bats. So just perfect building block for the Orioles to work with, I feel like. With Bradfield, I feel like the Orioles, if they can get him to about 15 a home run, home run per year power, that's a win because with his, you know, elite chase skills, as you mentioned, Bob, he doesn't chase a lot of pitches out of the zone. He's going to draw walks. He can hit the ball all over the place. He's going to add a lot of value with his defense. So you really don't need him, I think, at least, to develop into a 20 to 25 home run bat to justify this pick if everything else clicks. He is a very high floor pick. I will say that. When I saw the, the selection was Bradfield, I thought, okay, they've got a big leaguer. And they've got a guy that's going to stick around the big leagues for a while because of that speed and defense, which is not always something you're guaranteed with the 17 pick. There were definitely higher ceiling guys there, but Bradfield has a very high floor. And you could see where there's room left in that ceiling if they can develop the bat a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it just in the walk and strikeout numbers, he had a career walk rate of 14.6% and a career strikeout rate of just 13.6%. And that, as Michael I said, this is one of – the leadoff hitter, one of the best hitters on a the best programs, one of the best teams in the entire country in the SEC, the best conference in the entire country. Like 130 career stolen bases. He was a perfect 46 for 46 last season. I think the only thing that that I saw, I know I saw a lot of comments about the 279 average last year. But again, you're playing at Vanderbilt. You're facing studs every single weekend, and I, depending on where you look, he still has like a 50, 60 grade hit tool. So, again, there's there's more that, that the Orcs could get out of. You mentioned the chase rates. We're going to pull from uh, another great resource that we lost to a pro organization here, and uh, Mason McCray. He had some tweets from late May. So, I mean, the season was just about over by that point, but good sample size there. He had a 10% end zone whiff rate, 13% chase rate, and nearly half of his batted balls were 95-plus miles an hour. So if you're like, what do those mean? Is that good? It's tremendous. Um, swing decisions. It's He's got sound swing decisions. I think it's a pretty similar conversation to like Joey Ortiz too. If his bat can be just league average, like Ortiz is starting shortstop in the major leagues, like we've said. If Bradfield can just be a league average hitter, he's a top of the lineup talent. And as McCray pointed out, as part of his tweets, he said Bradfield's a four to five war player if the bat is just league average. Without the league average bat, he's still a two or three war player. That's how good the defense is. That's how uh, disruptive the speed is. I don't like the he's Jorge Mateo in center field comparisons because I think Bradfield can hit the ball. Mateo cannot. Um, can also take a slider <laughs> down and away. Yeah, like I, I don't like that at all. Uh, 
And Bob mentioned the, you know, the, the head on his shoulders. I like reading some of these. I think uh, Michael Bauman at Fangraphs had a great article. I know Baseball America had an article, like, does his game fit in the major leagues? A lot of great reading out there in Bradfield, if you, you got some time to kill at work. The, he's meticulous in his film study. Right? I loved reading. I think it was the Fangraphs article they talked about that, how meticulous he was in if the pitcher's head is at, like, this angle, he knows he's going to home plate, so he's going to take off. He knows pitchers inside and out. I, I just I love that. So, and you know, as you tinker with his offensive game, that defense and speed's not going to be impacted. He's still going to be elite in those areas. So, there's still a lot of ceiling there with him. Yeah, I I just wonder if they see something in his swing that they're like, oh, if he falls us, we can easily fix this, and that will make him you know a talent that's well above what you typically get in number seventeen. And this was a deep pretty stacked draft at the top anyway. So pretty much no matter what, they were going to get a legit talent here, but yeah, this, he might steal a hundred bases one year in the major leagues, the way they keep uh, trying to give more benefit to the runners and amazing defense. Like, like you said, I mean, that's a major leaguer. Even if he never hits a lick, that's, that's a major leaguer (laughs) pretty, pretty soon, probably two or three years. So yeah, just got to hope that they can develop him. And, and again, I just another thing I love about this draft and, and this guy in particular is how the Orioles are researching these guys personally, not just their skills on the field, but off the field. It just seems like they really value a positive clubhouse environment and think that that leads to better player development overall, competitive against each other, with each other, but also, you know, got their their mindset on, you know, getting better together. So just absolutely love the direction that continues to go with this organization and Enrique Bradfield Jr. I might've been a skeptic when I first heard your name called, but I'm all in now. I also just like a side story of the, how Colton Cowser doesn't answer Michael Elias's call, but Enrique Bradfield called Michael Elias. Apparently like that was just fun night. I love draft night so much. And I love stories like that. This kid wants to be an Oriole. This kid wants to be a big leaguer. Welcome to Baltimore. That's all I got to say. Move on now to the player that was chosen behind Bradfield in the Orioles draft board, and that was Matt Horvath. I t- talked about Horvath's numbers a little bit when I was uh, introducing this segment, and just to dive a little bit deeper, this past season at North Carolina, he belted 24 home runs with 25 steals and 29 attempts to go with 21 doubles. He posted an OPS of 1129. Along with that power and speed combination, Horvath does bring some versatility to the table as he can play infield as well as outfield. Horvath has said, I saw an article, and I'll pull up the outlet in a moment just to give proper credit, that he does see himself as someone who could develop into a center fielder, but the arm plays well at the corner spots right now. The question that seems to be out there when you read national reports about Horvath is the swing and miss tools. So, Bob, I don't know about you, and maybe this is this isn't a direct comparison necessarily, but there's a little bit of Judd Fabian vibes I get to this, and maybe even John Rhodes, where the raw tools are there, and it's a question of can they harness some of his actions at the plate and get, you know, come back to this point all the time, swing decisions. Can they improve his swing decision? Yeah, absolutely. I think the trend of this draft, as, as I'm sure we'll get to, is pitchers with electric stuff that they can work with and just absolute incredible athletes in the outfield that they can work with. And Horvath, I, uh, the new – social media threads, I've been trying to use that a little bit, and I'm doing a little blurb on each guys that the Orioles picked, and I said he reminded me of, like, a, offensively, a combination of Judd Fabian and John Rhodes, so I think you nailed it right there. Just, he's got, you can just tell in his swing from the video that it's just powerful and, and athletic and natural, and I think the swing and miss might be a little overrated, because from what I was reading, like, his problem was that he wasn't swinging enough, and he was taking strikes, and getting himself in bad counts, or taking strike three sometimes. So I actually think his, I think what it was like 80%, something was his uh, contact rate or whatever it was exactly. It was like right, decent numbers, good numbers, nothing to be concerned about. But this is just a guy that, you know, and I feel like now the biggest issue when you get these athletes in, they're just tool boxes or tool sheds, as uh, Brad Selick said earlier today. Can they stay healthy with the freak athletes that they are? And I feel like, this guy is just made to be developed by the Orioles into a really good player. And uh, yeah, I look forward to it. I love that he can play third base and the outfield. Like 
another Billy Cook type who can, you know, play the infield in the outfield. So, yeah, absolutely love this pick. And John Rhodes plus Judd Fabian, I'll take that every day. Yeah, I like he, – he's got the plus arm. We saw some of the videos there of him throwing guys out from right field. He's got the plus speed. This is also something that's common. This is just athletes, like speed. Every, all these guys have 55, 60, 65 grade speed grades, depending on the outlet you look at. I like that. <clears throat> I think Brad Selick also said, like, we're going to play him at third base as well. So they're going to keep him in the infield. They're going to keep him in the outfield as well. He can play all three outfield spots. You, you mentioned that the 80% contact rate, that that was, uh, I think it was Joe Doyle on his write-up, said, yeah, it's 80% contact rate and big-time exit below numbers. And he actually said that Horvath's strength was his approach at the plate. Uh, there's, you know, he struggles against higher velo apparently, but still he's making a lot of contact. He doesn't chase. Like you can't teach his athleticism, you can't teach the raw power that he brings. But he's got the foundations of a big time hitter, and you can fix that ability to, you know, pick up spin or handle higher velo, like turn that high contact rate into quality contact. Just look at Kobe Mayo. John Muley, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know John Muley had a great piece of the banner the other day talking about Mayo's development and Mayo's numbers against like breaking balls last year and how much they've improved. We know Judd Fabian's put in work in that area, and these are guys with had swing and miss concerns on those types of pitches. The Orioles have proven they can fix these guys. And so if there is a concern, if one of your only concerns about a hitter, like it is with Bradfield and Horvath, is maybe some swing and miss or some hit tool questions, I'm fine with that bring them into the organization and let the player development staff get to work. I kind of instantly thought the John Rhodes comp makes a ton of sense. I also thought just in terms of like, I also got Max Wagner vibes just because second round pick also, you know, maybe a little bit underwhelming second round pick at first glance, it's going to take some time maybe to warm up to him. And I feel like, you know, two months into next season, we could be sitting here like, all right, kind of who is he exactly? I get kind of those vibes as well. But that's just because the Orioles are maybe playing him everywhere. But I think in the meantime, like he's going to be a guy that keeps you interested because he's going to hit a lot of home runs. He's going to hit loud home runs. He's going to steal a lot of bases. Like get him in Roberto Mercado's team. This guy's hitting 15 home runs and stealing 30 bases. Like, and even Joe Doyle said with Horvath, he's a wild card. Um, so let's see what this. He's, he's got all the the building blocks there, and now we just got to see the Orioles kind of put these blocks together. It's John Rhodes is really the perfect comp, I think, is you're trying to compare him to guys who are already in the system. Yeah, all these position players that they drafted the first two days are just absolutely electric. They're going to be so fun to watch live. Loud tools, power, speed, athleticism. Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, the quote I mentioned earlier from Horvath came from Twins Daily. And if you're wondering why Twins Daily was writing about Horvath, that's because Horvath is from Minnesota. In fact, he went to high school in Minnesota up until his senior year when he played down at IMG Academy. So there's another parallel somewhat with Max Wagner. Wagner coming from a cold-weather state in Wisconsin. Horvath did go down to IMG for his senior year, but both guys are from cold-weather states, and I think there are some parallels where kind of uh, fast risers up close to the draft might not have necessarily been you know, big names in the second round, but interesting set of tools. And maybe a little raw coming into the system, but you can see where the Orioles player development model can improve them. And I warned you all, I, I did the mock draft episode. I had Horvath in there. So just, just saying Brad Selick saw my mock draft. and was like, I like it. Um, so I'll, I'll take, I'll take the credit, Brad, for, for that pick. Yeah. I was wondering why the name was familiar <laughs> when I heard it called. <laughs> we go now to a right-handed pitcher. The Orioles rounded out day, uh, night one of the draft with, and that is Jackson Ballmeister. You've heard us use the term hoppy fastball a lot on this show. Ballmeister fits those characteristics. A tall right-hander with a fastball that can rise up in the strike zone. Reports had it topping out in the high 90s this spring. While there are some concerns from national reports that Ballmeister's control could limit him to the bullpen, we have seen the Orioles take chances on guys like this in recent drafts, albeit in lower rounds. None of them quite have the ceiling that Ballmeister might have, but some question marks coming into the system. And one shout out to John Mioli again. I thought he hit the nail on the head in the banner this morning saying that um, Ballmeister, you could see him this time a year from now throwing a splitter and a sweeper or a cutter and a sweeper, I think it was, at Aberdeen. And that's probably the kind of development path you could see for him. 
when the Orioles were making this pick, I, this was another scenario where it was like, there were guys like Jack Hurley was sitting there, the outfielder from Tech. Uh, is it Jace Brohoffen, Brohaven from Arkansas? You even had Seth Keener out of Wake Forest. Those are some other guys I was like at the top of my preference list. I'm like, they're all there again. And they go Ballmeister, and there was like a lot of excitement on social media as soon as this pick was made. And it doesn't really take long to see why. Like, he's 6'4, 226 pounds, big extension. So that's going to help the stuff play up. You look at early on, it was mostly a, a bullpen arm at Florida State and then converted to a starter last year. And he had control issues early on in his career. Worked on that, went to the Cape Cod League after his freshman year and saw the walk rate drop from six and a half walks per nine innings. Improved on that uh, in the Cape. Carried that over to a sophomore year at Florida State where the walks dropped to 3.78 per nine innings. And he's striking out like more than 12 guys per nine. So I, I think Brad Selick already mentioned as well, I like the curveball a lot in some of the highlight videos I saw. And then Brad said, we're going to add some velo to that and make that pitch even better. I think the fastball, again, just like all these pitchers, most of these pitchers we're going to talk about, it's got good velo. Um, so I think he's also a draft eligible sophomore too. So like this, this isn't like an underslot pick. I think this guy's going to take some money. I think it was 1.24 million was his slot value. He might take a little bit more. I think I don't see many, I know not very many guys on day one or day two end up not signing, but he's only a draft eligible sophomore does. So he does have a little bit of leverage there, but you know, he's also a very young kind of inexperienced in a way picture. There's not a lot of mileage on that arm. So there's a ton of projection here with Baumeister that makes this pick even more exciting and intriguing. Yeah. I think we're going to talk about hobby fastballs about seven times tonight. Um, yeah, I, this was my favorite pick on the night of the, the first night last night um, at the moment, just because, I mean, this is like, obviously, first of all, the highest the Orioles have ever taken a, a pitcher under the Michael Elias regime. Um, but this, you, you mentioned the projection, but it seems like his stuff is already pretty nasty. Mason McRae on Twitter tweeted out his stuff plus numbers. And uh, overall, he sits at a 137. The four seam is a 144. Slider, 128. Curve, 120 change up 113 so four well above average stuff plus uh numbers on his pitches and the Orioles have shown that they're pretty comfortable taking guys with not the best control and working on that and improving it whether he ends up in the bullpen or they can get him into a, a starting pitcher long term then I mean this stuff is so electric I'm very confident they're going to be able to do something with this guy I mean we're excited about Trace Bright and this guy's just like a much better version, the rich man's version of Trace Bright, basically, to me. Yeah, and I think kind of like with Bright last year where we were talking about maybe there is more that meets the eye than what his college ERA suggests. I think that's absolutely the case with Ballmeister. And to go back to the points that John Mioli made in the banner this morning where he said he was going to expect him to uh, be throwing a cutter and splitter by next year in Aberdeen if history holds. That definitely feels like it would be a reasonable development path for him because you've already got that fastball-curveball combination, possibility of developing and change up to go with that. If you could really broaden his repertoire, that could make him, I think, a, a legitimate starting pitching prospect as long as the command is there. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think you've got, what, seven pitchers they drafted. Ballmeister, I think, has the highest ceiling here, possibly the highest ceiling. Uh, but... All seven of these guys honestly have traits and things that stick out to you and make you say like they could be starting pitching prospects. And the fact that the Orioles are not, clearly not afraid to turn any relief prospect into a potential starting pitching prospect. I, I just think that honestly, at this point, we saw kind of like a shift in this draft to where the Orioles now feel pretty confident in their development of pitchers uh, and getting the most out of these guys. And so I just think that, you see seven of these pitchers go in their first round. You see them go early with Baumeister. It, it's like all these guys throwing 98, 99 miles an hour. That's the one big thing with all these guys' fastballs. I don't think anyone in this bunch, the lowest fastball might be like tops, tops out at like 97 miles per hour. So it's no more of these like 92, 93 miles an hour guys with good stuff. It's guys that have decent secondary stuff, but fastballs that are going to carry them out, at least in the beginning, at 98, 99 miles an hour. So I just think we're seeing the shift now where this farm system is stacked with infield talent 
And we're seeing going to be seeing a lot more pitching uh, as over the next couple of years in drafts, I think. And we'll talk now about day two of the draft that covered rounds three through 10. And just to run down very quickly, the guys that the Orioles selected in the third round, the Orioles had two picks. The first selection was Kiefer Ward, a right-handed pitcher out of Washington, who I think we're going to talk about a lot here. They followed that up later in the third round with Tavion Josenberger, an outfielder who also does have a little bit of infield versatility, much like Horvath, and an interesting skill set that he brings with him into the farm system. Levi Wells was the Orioles' fourth rounder, a right-handed pitcher out of Texas State. He was followed by the bat that could be the sleeper in this draft class, and that was Jake Cunningham, an outfielder out of UNC Charlotte. Jacob Cravey, a right-handed pitcher out of Stanford University, was chosen in the sixth round, followed by Teddy Sharkey out of Coastal Carolina in the seventh round. Braxton Bragg, a right-handed pitcher in the eighth round out of Dallas Baptist University. Zach Fruit, another right-handed pitcher, was chosen out of Troy University in the ninth round. And then Matthew Etzel, an outfielder out of Southern Miss. The Orioles really did love the Sun Belt Conference uh, in day two, was chosen in the 10th round. So, Bob, I'll start with you here. What names in the day two class stand out to you? I legitimately like all these guys. Um, but to me, it's Jake Cunningham has the the asterisk on it as like the guy who I feel like could be a top 15, top 20 guy next year around this time. Um, just, again, electric athlete. I think Brad Selick said he showed plus-plus raw power at their workout, 111 exit velocities, and, you know, he's got the speed, the defense. I think he could stick in center. I think the reason his stock was down a little bit was because he was come back too soon from an injury or something happened this year where, you know, he could easily go back and increase his, his – uh, draft stock for next year so i think he's going to be an overslot guy if they're going to get him and seems like they love him so i would imagine that they will get him and they will pay him whatever it takes so yeah very excited about this guy and yeah uh, i'll say my favorite pitcher from this group would probably be teddy sharkey first of all amazing name uh, my cousin also went to crystal carolina so there's a connection there and um yeah, it just seems like his stuff is incredibly good. I know he was a relief pitcher for them, but he's got enough of an arsenal. I wouldn't be shocked if this is like an Alex Pham situation where he's a little bit, doesn't have quite the build that you would want to see from a starting pitcher, but he's got that three, four pitch mix that is really good. And, and maybe they play around with that and uh, make him into a potential starting pitcher. So I'd say those were my two favorites today. Yeah, the Jake Cunningham pick, I... I squealed a little bit when I saw that pick uh, come across on the screen. I'm very intrigued by just all of his tools. I love Brad Steele's quote, calling him a tool shed. He's got like 70 grade speed, which you don't expect. This guy can hit bombs and the numbers with a lot of these guys, like don't look at their college numbers. There's some of the, some of the pitchers like ERAs or, you know, talking about Baumeister, like he had an ERA over five, I think. I, I don't care. Who cares? Like the traits it's look at their stuff and Canadian's tools are off the charts. I think the broadcast even described his measurables as off the charts. And I think it was Jim Callis who said, you don't see college athletes like this guy. And I think they're 100% right. Just last year when he was healthy, he had 16 home runs and 16 stolen bases. This year, the numbers were kind of you know wonky because he had the ankle injury like Bob mentioned, but huge, huge exit velos. I like the getting that, the info there about the 111 exit velos coming in a workout at Camden Yards with a wood bat. I mean, we heard some of those big comments coming from a guy like Creed Willems with a wood bat workout pre-draft at Camden Yards, and look what he's turned into. Uh, I think there is risk there with him. He's like he's not a slam dunk by any means, but the potential is just so much fun to dream on because of the speed, because of the power. He's a center field defender. I think he could probably stick there. But he's got the raw power, the raw power speed, super athletic. Doesn't chase as well. Now you just get to work on the hit tool. I love that pick. Um, even the the 10th guy, the guy in the 10th round, just uh, you mentioned the Sun Belt. I love as as <laughs> JMU, new members of the Sun Belt. I'm learning about the Sun Belt Conference and uh, SEC, whatever. Um, Matthew Etzel is interesting. Another true center fielder from Southern Miss. Only hit seven home runs this season, but all the reports that I saw were talking about how I don't think he's really tapped into a lot of that raw power that he has. Again, another power speed combo guy, lefty, big time uh, athlete. 
88% contact rate plus bat to ball skills. Again, rarely chases. That's uh, in every single one of these hitters. Um, the scouting reports there. For the pitcher, I, I really like Levi Wells out of Texas State, the fourth round pick. Again, another Sunbelt guy. High strikeouts, low walks. He's got the delivery also that we've seen the Orioles love that Kyle Bradish, Alex Pham, over the top vertical arm slots. It looks like uh, he throws a mid 90s fastball that can touch 97. Baseball America gives him three pitches that grade out at 55 or higher. Uh, and the changeup, I think, was his worst graded pitch. But Baseball America's report noted that he only used it 6% of the time. So he just hasn't used it. I think he was a big riser of the last couple of years. And then his stuff kind of took a step back this year, but he's shown the ability to have much higher quality stuff in the past. I think the Orioles are going to bring him in, use him as a starter, and this could be a guy that, uh, again, like Baumeister, the ceiling is way higher uh, than where he's at right now. So tons of projection here with him. Yeah, there's a few names from day two that stood out to me, and I'll give a little bit of background on Cunningham because Bob touched on injury issues that he had. He had suffered an injury um, lifting weights, and that cost him the first couple of weeks of this season. And then when he was able to get back on the field, he was actually DHing initially. So right ankle injury while lifting weights, it cost him the first couple of weeks of this season, and then he DHed for a month after coming back off uh, the injured list. So not the best spring for Cunningham to showcase himself, but for the reasons that you both mentioned, Loud tools make him a very intriguing player. I really think that Tavion Josenberger has the potential to be interesting. This feels like one of those late riser picks that the Orioles really like to make. He transferred to Arkansas this spring after a couple of seasons at Kansas and tapped into a little, little bit more power while continuing to do some of the things that he does well, which is provide versatility and good plate discipline and strike zone judgment. So it feels like it's a bat that maybe doesn't have a ton of power projection necessarily, but you add in the versatility with the strike zone judgment, and he could be a pretty interesting prospect. And for the pitchers, I really, really like Kiefer Lord, the first pick that the Orioles had in the third round. There's a lot of good articles out there about how Lord basically turned himself into a pitcher. Uh, over the pandemic shutdown in the spring, he was in high school, topping out in the low 80s. Starts working out in the pandemic, all of a sudden gets his fastball up into a lot in the 90s, starts out of Division three school, then goes to Washington this year. And this is another case where you really should not be fooled by the high ERA. A couple of things to note were that he was rocked in his last four starts at Washington. Up until that point, his ERA had been riding in the low threes. And the quote here, uh, Brad Selick's take from him on him, and this is from Jacob Calvin Meyer in the Baltimore Sun. Selick notes that he threw his fastball over 70% of the time this year and adds, so a big focal point for us with him is going to continue to work on implementing his slider more often, but also let him use his curveball and change up increasingly with every outing he's going to get with us. So this is someone who has to work on his secondaries. And much like Baumeister, it feels like the Orioles see a guy whose fastball they like they think the mix of pitches is there just enough they can develop him and really refine him. And he's come a long way just in the last three years. Yeah, I love I love this pick as well. Him and, and Zach Fruit. Was it Zach Fruit? Is that his first name? Yeah. Um, these guys have huge arms, huge velocities right from the jump in the college season. And I think an interesting thing to note about the pitching development with the Orioles Look, we've seen Alex Pham, Gene Pinto. These guys pop up, and they've developed Justin Armbruster. I feel like the one thing that has been missing is that elite velocity that they can work with. And they got a lot of guys in this draft so far already that they give them that, and they can kind of work off of that. And I feel like that's where you get more of the high upside pitching prospects, not that there's anything wrong with the Alex Phams of the world. They're Obviously, we love them. They're doing great performance-wise, but – feel like there's a lot more ceiling with these guys like Lord and Fruit and 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 uh, Ballmeister. So, yeah, I, I absolutely lo love that pick as well. And that's one thing I was thinking about when, as these pitchers started coming off the board, like, look what the Orioles have been able to do with Armbruster was a smaller school guy. Now he's a top 30 prospect in the league's best farm system. Ryan Watson wasn't drafted, although that was 2020, so he probably would have been in that 6 to 10 range. He was the minor league pitcher of the year last year in this Orioles system. 
there are what seven or eight Orioles pitchers, pitching prospects in the top 30. And other than DL Hall, none of them were drafted in the first round. And a lot of these guys, like Bob mentioned, don't have the extreme fastball velos. So now you're going to bring in a guy who throws 99 with little mileage on his arm. I'm stoked to see uh, what they can pull out of these guys. But some of these other picks, too, just like to shout them out. I like six rounder Jacob Cravey out of Sanford. He's 6'6 six, six and threw over 100 innings last year at Sanford. I I doubt we see him this year. Maybe a couple one-inning stints down the FCL, maybe Delmarva, but he's just a 6'6 workhorse. He pitched against LSU this year, too, early on in the year. Early on at LSU, struck out Dylan Cruz, Gavin Dugas, and and Trey Morgan, like struck out all the guys. Only gave up two earned runs, so he held his own um, against the the eventual national champs there. I like that pick. Sharky, I just – the numbers on him are absurd. I also love – his emotion out there on the mound. You guys know I love that. He's going to strike you out, and he's going to make sure you know that he struck you out. But just the slider, 32% usage rate last year, had a 51% whiff rate, 48% whiff rate with his curveball, 74 strikeouts to just 18 walks and 49 innings. Just so much beautiful data out there on this kid. Seems like he's just, uh, I believe one of his coaches called him a psychopath uh, on Twitter. So I love that. Bring that to me. Um, Braxton Bragg. Braxton Knight doing backflips. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm, like, Braxton Bragg out of Dallas Baptist is cool story that he was Cade Povich's roommate roommate at Nebraska. Shout out to uh, Cade Povich's dad for giving us that tidbit there. Um, I do want to figure out the backstory about his name, though, uh, for fellow history people out there. Who may, may not, I do want to know that story. But, uh, again, he's a ground ball sinker specialist. We know we like those guys in this organization as well. So maybe more relief prospect there, same as Zach Fruit. But again, these guys have starter traits as well, and you just don't know what the Orioles are going to do with these pitching prospects. Yeah, reading up about Sharky today, he felt like one of those – he feels like one of those guys that if the Orioles decided, all right, we're going to limit him to one inning, just turn him loose in the bullpen, that he can move quickly. He's got a hard fastball that he commands well. He repeats his delivery very well, but – from the sounds of it, and again, quoting from the Jacob Calvin Myers piece over at the Baltimore Sun, um, Brad Selick said, ideally in Sharkey's situation, they would hopefully extend him and let him go a couple of innings. And he did add, now I'm not going to sit here and say that the idea would be to develop him long-term as a starting pitcher, but that is something that we'd like to strive for with Teddy. When I hear that, I think to myself, they would like to see if they could get him to be sort of in that Brian Baker mold right now, where there's a guy who's got a hard fastball that you can go to out of the bullpen for multiple innings of relief. So even if they try Sharkey as a starter and it doesn't work, if he shows that he can get through an order um, over three innings and be successful, that sets him up nicely to be a multi-inning reliever. Yeah, it just seems like that's the way the game is going as far as uh, elite relievers. You want guys that could potentially give you two or three if you need it. So, yeah, I like that a lot. Also, want to say Matthew Etzel, he's got an awesome beard. And Tavian Josenberger, I think he might be the, the sleeper of the uh, of the first two days. I feel like, you know, they got a lot of these athletic outfielders. And I feel like he's a switch hitter. He can learn a lot from uh, Cedric Mullins. Maybe he ditches the switch hitting at one point. But if you're Ben Dorst, Orioles status one on, uh, on Twitter, you got to like this draft because he's a fan of the steals. You're going to see a lot of steals from these guys. That actually segues me perfectly to the question I was about to ask the two of you. Big emphasis on speed with the hitters in this draft class. We know the Orioles right now at the major league level are stealing a ton of bases, and that's been part of their success. Do you think that this reflects maybe a broader organizational shift towards speed, or do you think that it's maybe just a case where there are some hitters whose profiles they like, but they also happen to be fast, and that's another bonus? I think they've targeted this. I, I think Bradfield was probably the number one or number two guy on their board. And I don't know if, if they, they came out and said anything about that, where he was ranked on their board or not, but I imagine he was very high on the Orioles board because they wanted his skill set. I also think that, you know, I, we've seen this play out at the major league level already, what impact this has. And now like we're not, we've got the big boppers that you drafted early. You've got them up to the major leagues. Now you get some on-base guys who can steal bases to fill in the rest of this lineup. I think it's all going to play out pretty beautifully. I, like, I forgot which point I was going to make here next, but 
Yeah, I, I think we're seeing a shift here with with the speedsters, uh, who again have great swing decisions as well. It's not just speed. It's not just like you know the Juan Pierre types, right? These are guys who have multiple skill sets, and they've already proven that they can get uh, more guys, more out of guys as hit tools. And so, if you've got guys now with speed in the organization, you're adding a whole another dimension to these players in the system. And just just look at Aberdeen. I think that was the point I was going to make. Just look at Aberdeen. Again, I don't think it's just all just the field. I think maybe they're like trying this out. Like, all right, we're in high A. They went to Roberto Mercado at the beginning of the year and said, steal all the time. Get these guys moving. And I think this we're going to see that more in the upper levels of the minor leagues even. And in, again, in a couple of years, it's going to translate into the major leagues. So I, I do think it's a whole big philosophical shift here. Yeah, I do think it's that. I also think they just want to get – awesome athletes and feel like you know the the better the athlete the better the the clay that you can mold them with and i feel like they have focused on defense a lot as well uh in this draft and versatility i mean obviously horvath can play third base and outfield but i feel like these guys can play all three outfield positions they can just be moved around and and played with because i think with a talented farm system, a talented organization like the Orioles have, you're going to need guys to be able to do more than one thing, play more than one position to get them in the lineup. And yeah, I think also just we've seen what Mateo Mullins, even just the first game of the season against Boston when we stole what five or six uh, bases, just see what that kind of can do. And, and we know that this organization is forward thinking. So if they're just thinking, Hey, this is where the game's going, let's jump on it first. And, and that's what they're doing. We'll go now to talking about some players who are in the Orioles farm system. And, of course, we're going to have more coverage of players that are drafted in this draft class because we'll have presumably some day three picks that we'll want to talk about next week. And then, of course, when our top 50 update comes in August, it's going to include draft picks from this draft class. So that's going to be a lot of opportunity for us to discuss these guys in fuller detail. But for now, let's shift our focus over to players who are currently in the system and are moving up. Jackson Holiday, Kobe Mayo, and Chase McDermott all earn promotions to the next level with Mayo and McDermott going to AAA Norfolk and Holiday making the leap to AA Bowie. We'll start with Holiday in this discussion because a 19-year-old went to high A and pretty much picked up right where he left off in Delmarva, batting 314 over 259 plate appearances with the Ironbirds while posting a 162 WRC+. Plus belting five homers and showing that elite pitch recognition and plate discipline that he had down in Delmarva, striking out 20.8% of the time while walking 19.3% of the time. So not surprising that Holiday gets to jump to Bowie. I think we all kind of knew coming into this season that that was the end goal for him this year. But here we are in mid-July. He's going to get two solid months at a higher level. Nick, what are your thoughts on this promotion? I I mean, I think I said a couple weeks ago that I figured July 1 was going to be when he gets called up. If he was going to continue to play the way he did when he first got called up, that there's no way you're going to keep him in double-A. And I know I've seen a lot of other you know, people kind of you know fire back and say, well, like, why are we rushing him? We don't need to rush him. Look at triple-A. Look at the major league roster. Look at triple-A. There's no need to rush him. He's still 19. I do get that, but you also want to challenge this kid. We know the organization loves to challenge their top prospects and be aggressive with them. And I think you've got a perfect opportunity here with a holiday. Honestly, I know I said a couple weeks ago, July one was the target here, but you know, I don't really want to call it a slump, but he just wasn't as electric as he had been the rest of the year for a couple of weeks there, but it had one week of really huge games for holiday. And I was kind of a little bit shocked, but pleasantly surprised to see the Orioles go ahead and, and move him up. And one thing too, like I was trying to find his splits because he got promoted. I can't break down the splits. I was trying to look at what his numbers were like just at Aberdeen, and I can't seem to do that here on the fly on his player page. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad he's up in Double A already. He gets the bump up. He's what still three years younger than his competition or so at the high level, and the walk rate and strikeout rates were virtually the same as they were in Low A. So really, no change there. 162 WRC plus is still absurd at this level. You know, he might, he, we might see him struggle a little bit now that he's getting the bump up to double A. He is 19 years old at the double A level. It's, I don't think we're going to see him hit like 175 over the next three weeks or something, but 
patience with him at this point. That's the only thing I would say uh, now that he's getting bumped up pretty aggressively here. To me, I feel like I've been able to identify why now is the time to promote him. We know Matt Blood. He wants to see these guys struggle when they're promoted. Obviously, Jackson Holiday hit the ground running in high A for a long time. And then I think we joked that uh, Matt Blood was finally happy when Jackson Holiday started struggling a little bit. From May 24th to June 22nd, he batted 207 with a 637 OPS. Still had a 94 WRC plus because he walked more than 19% of the time. But he went through that rough patch and then bounced back from June 24th to July 6th and batted 381 with an OPS over 1,000 again, 185 WRC plus. So I feel like that was when they were like, okay, we saw what we wanted. He struggled. He adjusted. And he's killing it again. And now let's challenge him again, see if we can get him to struggle. The other, the other hitter going up uh, in this round of promotions is Mayo, who just absolutely tore up his competition at Double A Bowie, batting three hundred seven with a one seventy six WRC plus, seventeen home runs to go, with some of the best strikeout to walk numbers of his career. He struck out just under twenty five percent of the time, yet walked just under fifteen percent of the time, which is pretty good for a guy with that kind of power. Bob, it felt like this promotion had to be coming sooner rather than later later because Mayo just seemed to be getting better as time went on. And it got to the point where you're sitting there wondering, is he going to get like another two weeks in double A and then his WRC plus is going to be like 220 with, uh, and then he'll have 25 homers or something like that. But this is probably, I think statistically, one of the, probably the strongest case for a promotion right now in the Orioles farm system. Oh yeah, it was... You know, the only reason it hadn't happened yet, I feel like, is just because of the cluster of prospects that were already in Norfolk. And now that Jordan Westberg and Colton Cowser are up with the Major League team, that created some space. And we saw Kerstad first, and Prieto, now Mayo. Uh, I feel like we started calling for this promotion like three weeks to a month ago, and it's finally happened. And we talked about how, you know, maybe we'll see Jackson Holiday struggle a little bit at the beginning when he gets to double A. I'm not expecting that from Kobe Mayo. I feel like he's going to hit the ground running. I feel like he's extremely motivated. I think he's closer as far as prospect capital to Jackson Holiday than a lot of people think. I think this guy is a top 10, top 15 type of prospect in all of baseball. I think he's still being overlooked despite just absolutely getting better and better as the season goes on, just putting up ridiculous numbers. Um, Yeah, I couldn't be happier that he's in AAA. And honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if he was another guy that could get a uh, cup of coffee in September. If he just continues to rake like he was in Bowie, a contending team is not going to pass up that opportunity towards the end of the year. Yeah, just absurd numbers Mayo was putting up. The month of June, he played in 26 games. He hit 340 with an OPS of almost 1,200. He had eight home runs that month and 20 walks to 29 strikeouts. Just a steadily improvement too from April up through June. 883 OPS to a 953 OPS to an 11.78 OPS, and the month of July, he played in eight games. He had six walks in those eight games, two home runs, 10.77 OPS. I, I do agree that it was kind of just that logjam there. And we said from the beginning, it was we got to Jordan Westberg has got to be like the 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 key Jenga piece here that's got to move first, and then you're going to see the rest of the tower fall down. And we're seeing that now. He's up in the major leagues. Prieto's up. There's still playing time. Uh, Mayo can move over to third base now. He's going to play third, probably first, DH as well. Kerstad just continue to play first base, right field, DH as well. I, I Honestly, I was trying to find this tweet here from a great follow on Twitter. O's Observations on Twitter had a couple polls out about who right now would put up better offensive numbers in the major leagues. I was trying to see who he put with Mayo. Was it Mountcastle? It's probably Mountcastle, yeah. I, and that's a, that's a really good question. Right now, would Mayo, uh, yeah, who right now would put up better offensive numbers in the big leagues, Kobe Mayo or Ryan Mountcastle? And Kobe Mayo was uh, won the vote at 57.8%. Honestly, I fully believe that. I would say if you put Kobe Mayo in the major leagues right now, it might take a couple of weeks, but the adjustments, again, I still don't have the article pulled up, but John Miller's article on Mayo's adjustments that he's made this year in his development, the numbers are astronomical. The production that he's putting up on breaking pitches, sending the ball the other way, he's becoming a much more complete hitter. It's clicking. There's that that conversation that him and Anthony Villa had, and they're working on things, and he's finally starting to do it in games, and it's all clicking for him, and he has not turned back. 
I, I do agree that he's still getting slept on nationally. I mean, this is – I'm moving up to number two in my rankings, and I don't think – I fully agree with Bob. I don't think the gap between Holiday and Mayo is that wide. Here's something I find fascinating about Mayo. If you look at his month-over-month month splits, I'll run off his OPS totals, and you can really pick any stat in this grouping and see the same trend. But 883 OPS um, in the month of April, pretty solid. Then it jumped up to 953 in May. 1178 in June and was 10 is at 1077 through eight games in July. So he's truly getting better as the year has gone on. Yeah, it's very much like I feel like Gunnar Henderson um, last year. Just you know, you could just tell that it was clicking. Like like Nick said, something clicks and the confidence is there. And then once that's there, good luck pitchers because I mean these guys are so talented. They hit the ball so hard, um, and when they're not swinging at bad pitches. It's over. The key is like how, and now at this point, like how do the Orioles view this infield of the future playing out? I think now that he's in triple a, you're, it's going to get a lot more real here pretty soon. Like is Kobe Mayo one of the untouchables? We know Jackson holiday is, he's not going anywhere, but is Kobe Mayo or everyone's everyone can be had for a price obviously and we know that price on Kobe Mayo is going to be astronomical but are the Orioles going to be willing to put him in a deal be the headliner of a package maybe at the deadline or maybe sometime this offseason I don't know if the massive trade comes at this deadline I think that's more of an offseason type thing but I am very curious now now that he's in AAA and he's playing as well as he is and he's getting more national attention he's going to be a top 20 prospect nationally I think by this time next year, if he moves up to AAA, now that he's in AAA, if he's putting up good numbers, they're going to bump him up on national list. What's his future? Um, it's it's going to be really interesting to see. And I like Vivek's comment there. I'd hate the job of who to keep and who to trade. Yeah, I, I don't envy this front office at all. But again, it's a fantastic problem to have because, all right, you, you decide to keep Kobe Mayo, you've got Joey Ortiz, Connor Norby, like 10 other pieces in this organization who are – Top 100 or just outside top 100 nationalists that you can move. So, yeah. If I'm Michael Elias, there's a bunch of guys that I don't want to trade just because I like them so much. You know, Heston Kerstad, Samuel Basayo, um, even who am I not thinking of right now? Joey Ortiz. But to me, Kobe Mayo, Jackson Holiday, uh uh-uh. uh, you're going to have to overpay big time to get those guys just for their age and what they're doing and their talent level. No, you, I wouldn't be surprised if. This is when you start to see Mayo out in the outfield a little bit more with the first baseman a little bit more. Now he's in AAA. He's right there. That bat is right there for a team that is contending for a division in the stacked AL East. So if he's continuing to rake in AAA, you're going to start seeing him moving around because they want that option to bring him up if they need him. And they might. Depends on the trade deadline. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But yeah, it's super exciting once these guys that are so good so young, get up to AAA, you're one phone call away. And, I mean, obviously we know it wouldn't happen until, like, end of August, early September just because of Rookie of the Year concerns and, and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's it's very exciting. The, the first game they put him in the outfield in Norfolk, I'm losing it because I know as soon as they put him in the outfield, that's going to tell you one thing. We know this organization by now. That's going to tell you that they're thinking about it, that he is firmly an option to be called up if this team makes the playoffs. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm mad we got like a couple more days, off days. I want to see him in a Norfolk Tide uniform, and I want to see him hitting home runs over that picnic area down there at Harbor Park right now. Absolutely. We'll cover Chase McDermott now. McDermott making the jump from Bowie to Norfolk. Very good through 68 in the third innings with the Bay Sox as he struck out 88 batters, posted a 3-5-6 ERA. If there is one thing to quibble about with McDermott, it is the walks. He walked 44 batters in that span and posted a walk per nine inning of 5.8, which was just a little bit above the total that he had last year pitching for three teams in two different organizations. He had 5.6 walk per nine and 103 and two thirds last year between the Astros and Orioles organizations. So far, that number at 5.8 through his first 68 and a third innings pitch this season. It is worth noting, though, that I just talked about the month-over-month splits with Kobe Mayo. McDermott has a much different trend when it comes to walk numbers. Nine walks in 16 to third innings in April, 
And then in May, his workload gets ramped up a little bit, 27 in the third innings, pits over six starts, walks 22 batters in that span. The total dropped down to nine and 20 and two-thirds over five starts in June. He had a one start in July before the promotion where he walked four batters. So McDermott does have, I would say it starts or maybe clusters of starts where the command does get away from him. But I think that when you watch him, even on days where his command is not at his best, it's clear that his fastball and curveball are elite pitches. And I think that it's probably time to test that against more advanced competition. Yeah. When uh, D.L. Hall finally returns from his pilgrimage down down to uh, Sarasota to get that velocity back, they got to get a pose with them pointing at each other, Spider-Man meme, because the <laughs> right-handed version, left-handed version. Uh, but it's still exciting because just the potential is is insane with him, his stuff. And I feel like, yeah, maybe you could justify keeping him down in A a little bit more. But I feel like he, even his last start, I feel like he – was doing great, and then didn't he like walk a bunch of guys late in the the fifth inning of his outing? But I don't know. I just think the AAA rotation has not been the most exciting outside of Grayson Rodriguez. Drew Rom struggled a little bit. Guys have been up and down, like Bruce Zimmerman. So it'll be fun to have a guy in AAA, and I'm sure Kate Povich will not be too far behind him in a in the next few weeks to months. Um, it'll be exciting. You want to get the walks down, but. I just want to see how his stuff plays against those 4A or even just prospects at AAA. I just want to see how that plays contact-wise. Is it going to be soft contact like it was in AA? Can he really just put the ball over the plate, give him a chance to hit it, and, and they'll roll it over or they will just miss, foul it off? So I think it'll be a good test. And I do like Vivek's question, but I want to hear what Nick has to say first. I. I honestly think it will play against those AAA hitters and those quad A guys that tougher competition because when he throws strikes, again, John Milley pointed it out as well. And you can see some of these numbers if you're just looking at his fan graphs page. When he throws strikes, he is the top performing pitching prospect in this organization. I think hands down, no questions asked. I mean, he's not allowing home runs. Last year in Bowie, he allowed 2.36 home runs per nine innings. That's down to 0.79. I know he's walking a lot of guys, but at the same time, he's not giving up home runs. He's got that ERA cut in half pretty much compared to last year. Strikeouts are pretty much maintaining the same. Is He's just got, and I know, I, I hate to say it because I found myself, it's like it's the same conversation we had as Deal Hall, just throw strikes. I know we're getting there with McDermott, and I hate saying it. I'm trying to stop myself, but God, like the production that McDermott, we didn't see this type of production, I think, from Deal Hall when he threw strikes. McDermott is getting unbelievable numbers. Guys just cannot barrel that stuff that he has. Um, we'll see. I, I think that this organization strongly believes that to move him up, because like you said, they could have just kept him in double A, but I think they felt like the stuff is just too good. The results when he's on are just too good. We can't ignore it. Let's get him up to triple A. And it, honestly, like feast or famine, either you're going to keep walking guys and it's not going to work out, or you're going to start throwing strikes and you're really going to start to take off got a good question here from Vivek about McDermott. Um, do you guys think McDermott may get some shorter stints for bullpen purposes for the major league team? I mean, even if the control isn't super improved when you get to AAA, again, it's not as big of a concern if you're only out there throwing for one inning. And he can throw in the upper 90s. He's got that explosive fastball. His slider it doesn't matter how bad of quality camera you're looking at on MILB TV. You can see the movement on this slider. I mean, it's ridiculous the movement this guy has on pitches. He can be a weapon in the major leagues by the end of the year if you need him to be. And, you know, if you only need him out there for it to go against two or three batters, he could be effective. Yeah, I feel like I talked about the possibility of using Kate Povich in that uh capability in that spot uh, a few months ago and yeah Chase McDermott same thing stuff is so good and major leaguers you know they're not going to have a lot of tape on him it's some really good stuff even if it's like all right if he walks two batters then you got to hook him but just yeah that would be Francisco Rodriguez-esque K-Rod Chase Rod I don't know that doesn't make any sense but yeah he could be something like that potentially uh I wouldn't count on it. I would imagine they just continue to develop him as is. But if the need arises and they're like, hey, we have him right here, they could easily go to that. 
Yeah, that's kind of my expectation too. They're going to kind of stick with their plan for him, and that's for him to continue starting uh, because they do have other options down at Norfolk that they could look at. Darlington and Hernandez still is not up in the major leagues. So you've got a couple of guys you could turn to. But, yeah, I could absolutely see, you know, in August where the Orioles feel like, okay, we need another reliever or two for the month of September. McDermott is pitching well at AAA, but let's start reducing his outings a little bit and get him ready for a bullpen role. I absolutely wouldn't rule that out. And just to touch on that point, thinking long-term, there's not a lot. I don't think we're going to learn the definitive answer in AAA because you almost never do about whether or not a guy is going to be a starter at the major league level or a reliever. But the fact that McDermott got through AA um, is an, an encouraging sign for me in terms of his prospects as a starting pitcher. It's not an end-all, be-all, but it's an encouraging sign. Yeah, I was going to say, too, with McDermott, I was looking real quick. He's not Rule 5 eligible, so I was wondering if maybe like that could speed up things a little bit more as well, but he's not. And you're going to have a lot of other decisions to make, I think, on this roster uh, come this offseason as far as the Rule 5 goes. But And, yeah, I like that Darwin's and Hernandez. Easton Lucas could be an option. You give him a chance as well, see if he could do it and whether or not you want to protect him this offseason. But it is an interesting Charles. question. Yeah, Juanis and Charles, although he's – Last couple outings not so great, but uh, you know he's learning. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. Interesting, interesting uh, question. There's something to think about here. Is uh, we have no games to watch. We'll go now into our final segment tonight, where we shout out players outside of our top thirty for things that they've done recently, whether that has been a good game, a good week, or just something interesting in their stat line that we want to point out. So Bob, you haven't done this in a couple of weeks. We'll let you start. Yeah, a little rusty, but let's see what we got. For my hitter, I picked Thomas Sosa, who got a late start to the FCL season. I, I, I don't know why. Maybe he was banged up or, or whatever. But this was a guy we were excited about after last year's international signing period with uh, some power potential. And he did not exactly light up the stats um, in the DSL. He batted 201. With a 596 OPS, 68 WC plus, walked 8.8% of the time, struck out over 26% of the time. But in his first 48 plate appearances in the FCL since he came in, he's performed pretty pretty darn well. I'd say he's batting 256 with an 857 OPS, 124 WRC plus, walking double what he did last year, 16.7%, striking out only 20.8%. ISO has doubled as well. It's still only 12 games so far, but just like what you see early on from him making adjustments and developing. And for my pitcher, I got to go with Jared Beck, the seven-footer out of last year's draft. I mean, he's just getting better and better as the season goes on. On the season, he's got his ERA down to 3.86, which it was in the fives not too long ago, uh, striking out 12 batters per nine, walking five, but you expect a guy that tall to struggle with command. So That'll probably be the last thing that comes. But over his last, what is this, five starts since June 14th, he has a 0.90 ERA over 20 innings with 25 strikeouts and 12 walks. No home runs allowed in that span. So shout out to him. He's turning himself into someone to keep an eye on for sure. I like them. I, I bought a Thomas Sosa autographed baseball card after the Orioles signed him. So I need him to uh, to do good. I was wondering if you've seen any videos on Thomas Sosa either recently. But uh Anyway, Silas, my hitter is uh, Silas Arduin, Arduin uh, down in Aberdeen. He played in four games last week, had six hits. Three of them were home runs. He had seven walks and just one strikeout. Just crazy numbers. Aberdeen just had their own home run derby down in Greensboro last week. I don't know if that's a home run friendly park or not, or just Greensboro just doesn't have the pitching. I'm honestly not, I don't think, I don't even know if they've had a broadcast up until this year. So, I don't really know much about their ballpark, but Aberdeen seems to love hitting there. Uh, he had a multi-home run game and then turned around and his first at bat, I believe, of the next game hit his third home run. Uh, we already know like he brings really impressive defense to the table. He's been a top 30 prospect before on some national lists, so if he can just show a little bit of offensive production, I think he becomes a super attractive prospect in the system. And then my pitcher, I'm going, what says Chasse? I, I feel like I get the daily recap duties for every Moises Chasse start, and they're all the same. He starts out, it's the first inning, he looks great, and then the walks pile up, and he falls apart, 
he seems to fall apart, but he's picking up the win. He gives up four runs or five runs, five or six walks, but he's getting like six or seven strikeouts every single outing. But last week, he went four innings, gave up no runs, had just two walks and seven strikeouts. And on the year, he has 78 strikeouts in 52 innings. And opponents are hitting just 202 against him, but he does have that 1.65 whip. The walks are definitely holding him back. Again, I'm, I'm just going to say it again. Just stop walking, guys. Just throw strikes, limit the walks, and uh, we could see him in Aberdeen later this year. He just turned 20, so still a young guy. I'm still holding out hope for uh, Moises Chasse to uh, take take a, take a off at some point in the next uh, couple of weeks. My picks this week, starting with the hitter Maxwell Costas. Um, Nick mentioned that Aberdeen sitters really loved hitting in Greensboro's ballpark, and Costas was no exception. On Thursday, he contributed three for four performance with two home runs and four RBI. He has hit three home runs already in the month of July this season. And overall this season, 38 games, 134 plate appearances, has an 897 OPS to go with seven homers. I would love to see the batted ball data on Costas because it feels like when he squares up on a baseball, he squares it up and hits it really hard. That's something that's been noticeable with him since he came into the organization last year. And that has helped him so far be successful, at least from a power production perspective during his time with Aberdeen. Worth noting too, he's posted a 388 on base percentage along the way. Pitching wise, I'm going to shout out Houston Roth, who in his first outing back from a short IL stint on Saturday, delivered two no hit innings of relief coming in behind Cade Povich, who was excellent in a win against the Richmond flying squirrels. Roth came in, delivered two no-hit innings out of the bullpen with four strikeouts and one walk. Roth does have an ERA of 5.62 on the year, but has struck out 53 batters in 49 two-thirds innings pits. Hopefully now that he's back from the IL after a short break, he's able to string together some good outings for Bowie. That does it for this week's show. Bob, Nick, and I will be back next Monday to break down the latest in the Orioles, including perhaps some major league and minor league news, as well as a look at any day three selections that we find interesting. With in the meantime, check us out on Twitter, at CSL well. on the Birds, as well as Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Bob, you have something you want to add before we sign off? I was just going to say we'll have a, a nice guest. Joe Doyle will be joining us to talk about the draft as well. Yeah, absolutely. You do not want to miss that. Joe Doyle will be happy to have him on. Um, so we all have that to look forward to next Monday. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest covers on the Orioles, Ravens, Terps, and more. And then if you have not signed up yet, become a member of our Patreon community. For as little as $3 a month, you'll have access to our WhatsApp channel, get the shout-out at the start of the show. And then at our 5 and $10 levels, you'll have access to our exclusive bonus daily coverage as well as monthly top prospect list updates. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.